It's that time of year for some of us where we have a little panic on. I don't know whether or not you are a tax return person. I certainly am. Have you done yours? Has to be done, completed by the 31st of January. Otherwise, you incur a fine. I'd actually put ours to one side. This is the thing about the tax return. The tax return always comes quite quickly after the financial year. So it arrives around April, May time. But then you have to wait for a few other documents like the P60 and all those others. So when ours comes, I normally just put it to one side and wait for everything else to come through before I complete it. Ours is quite simple. It's not a case of I don't want to do it. I just happened to put it to the side and I'd just not gotten round to it. And what had happened? It actually sunk to the bottom of a pile of papers. And thankfully, I got a nice little text message off HMRC this week to just say, ah, we have not received your, te- your tax return yet. Um, just a gentle reminder that you need to do it. So I quickly hurried around to find this paperwork and I, I found it, completed it and filed it. Hey Presto, hopefully he's going to be nice to me, the nice tax man, and give me a nice little rebate back. I don't think so. The tax return is something that we each do but we often put to one side. Over the month of January we've looked at the Covenant Sunday Promise. It was a card that we received at the beginning of the month. And we were invited to respond to the love of God that was revealed to us by renewing our covenant. I often think these Sundays that we embark upon are done with great sincerity. And we come to Covenant Sunday and we sign our card very meaningfully. But a bit like my tax return, it gets put to one side. As does the essence of the covenant that is made. Therefore, during the month of January, we've actually been looking and breaking down this covenant promise into the three sections to explore a little further the implications of this covenant and see how how we can implement it to ensure that it's authentic, that it's relevant to our daily living as disciples of Jesus. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the first section And the first section said, as as your love lives in me, may my thoughts, my words and actions reflect you at all times and in every place. And I suggested that the practice of authentic Christianity starts with having an accurate picture of God, who he is. We need to understand and reflect on the nature of God. We had to be real about God. And then last week, Claire looked at the second part. And the second part said, may my soul be a place we meet where all I am becomes all that you want me to be in heart, mind, and spirit. And she considered that authentic Christianity is actually built upon knowing Christ. And she challenged us to meet and to be like God, to be real with ourselves and about our standing with God each day. Well, this week I move on to the final part of this promise. And that final part says this, in being one with you, I may see you, know you, and show you in every part of my life that in me and through me, your kingdom may come 
now. Well, for me, the key word in that little final section is the word sure. Sure you in every part of our life. To be authentic in our discipleship, we are to see and show God in every part of our lives. In essence, we're to be real with other people so as to let the kingdom of God flow through our lives. And we do this by valuing the relationships that we have and build and make each and every day of the week. When I was at primary school, I don't remember an awful lot about it. I remember the teacher, she was called Miss Hill. She was awful. She was a real tyrant. But one of the things that she always used to do on a Monday morning, our first class, our first lesson, was to practice our speaking and our creative writing by telling the class what we'd each done over the weekend and writing about it in our books. We all had to get up in front of the class. We all had to come and stand there. We all had to tell everybody what we'd been up to. And then we all, once we'd done that, we had to write about it in our books. It was, in essence, show and tell. And it was one of the best classes of the week for me. You know, I think Facebook and other forms of social media are modern-day equivalents. That's what they are, show and tell. There you can post your photographs of your adventures for all to see. You're able to share your stories with one another. People can see what you've been up to, who you've spent your time with. It's show and tell. Do you remember it in the book of Acts, chapter 4? There's a story where Peter and John are on their way into the temple shortly after Pentecost. And there they met a lame beggar who wants for, asks for alms, and instead they tell him to pick up his mat and walk. They heal him on the way into the temple. And this miracle gives them wonderful opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they preach it, lots of people get saved, thousands actually. And the temple priests are not happy. And so they imprison them overnight, and then they summon them the next day to explain themselves. And Peter and John boldly tell everyone... That it's Jesus that's done this. Jesus is the only way to salvation. And then there's a lovely little note in the text in John chapter 4. It often gets overlooked, but it says this, verse 13. And it speaks of the priests and all the people around them. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, but those of us who call ourselves Christians all live with the desire that something about our lives will demonstrate to other people that we've spent quality time in Jesus' company. Don't we? We want that other people will be able to say, Adrian Allman's been with Jesus. Darren Selby's been with Jesus. You can apply it to yourself. We all want that, surely. That people look at us and say, they have been with Jesus. Just like in Acts chapter 4. We all hope our lives will show and tell to others that we're being developed by our Christian faith. It's that which is instrumental in our growth. And yet, we're also very conscious 
that were shaped by the world that we live in, whether you like it or not. We don't live oblivious to anything else. We live in a world, and that world shapes us. And so that brings me to our scripture reading from chapter 12 of Romans this morning. And I think to truly understand chapter 12 of the Romans, we need to understand something of the background to Paul's letter to the Romans. So we need a bit of context. So let's just do a quick recap. Romans is a wonderful exploration of the mercy and compassion of God for everybody. That's what Paul is saying through the chapter to the Romans. And really what he's saying is that all humanity is trapped in sin, needs to be rescued. And this doesn't happen through obedience to laws. Instead, it's because of God's gracious and righteous character that has moved him to want to rescue the world through Jesus and through his death and resurrection. And when people trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're given a new status. They're put right with God. They're forgiven. They're given a new family. They're included into God's people. They're given a new future. There's a hope of transformation. And when people actually become in Jesus, they become joined to him. And so what's true of Jesus then can become true of them. That's Romans 12 in a nutshell. Romans 1 to 11 in a nutshell that's brought us to chapter 12. This is what Paul has been saying. And so after this wonderful exposition of the immense mercy and compassion of God, Paul turns to chapter 12 and to the question of our response. And actually he's saying, this is what God has done. Therefore, what should we now do? This is what God has done. Therefore, What should we now do? And so through Romans chapter 12, we're given a relational, grace-based path to spiritual formation and authentic Christian discipleship. And this heart change that we've experienced as a result of God's grace, Paul says is to be reflected in our life with other people. And the chapter opens with the choice almost. It's a choice. He's offering the choice. Are we to be shaped by God's transforming power or are we going to be shaped by the world in which we live? Are we to be shaped by God's transforming power or are we going to be shaped by the world in which we live? And for Paul, our relationship with God is at the core of our discipleship. It's at the core of our journey in in, in faith. And so he implores the Romans to do this. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's interesting language, isn't it? eh? Offer your body. What earth does that mean? The biblical scholar Frank Crouch reminds us of this in his commentary on this passage. Everything we think, say or do, we do in a body. Presenting our bodies means staying aware each day that our body is the primary location in in which we actually express our heart, soul, strength and mind. If we want to know our inmost motives and values, 
we can look at what we do each day in our bodies. This represents to everybody else what we value. This. 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 Every day in all the places we go, all the things we do, and all the decisions and recommendations we make, according to Frank, we are presenting our bodies. And what Paul is saying is, when we present these bodies to others, it's to be done through the transforming power of God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Friends, we're relational beings, and God wants visible, lived out, bodily evidence that our lives are being built on his grace and transforming power. That's what he wants. In our relations, God wants bodily evidence that our lives have been built on his grace and on his transforming power. So how can we do that? When I'm conscious, when you're conscious, that I'm also shaped by the world in which we live. I think Paul gives us a little bit of encouragement here because Paul encourages his readers in the next few verses to not forget we don't just exist as individuals in individual bodies. We exist as the members of the body of Christ. That's what he says. I don't live alone. We live together. And our discipleship journey is not done alone. It's done together as a body. And so if we're going to be authentic Christians, we need to value the relationships that we have within the church. You and I relate to each other. You and I form one body. And then he moves on and we get three very similar instructions. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 15, live in harmony with one another. Verse 18, live at peace with everyone. How do you do that in such a diverse world as 2024? How is that possible? How do we manage this? If we're to value relationships, if we're to be real with others, how do we deal with our differences? We don't all think alike in this room. And we certainly don't think alike to many thoughts that are in this world. We have differences within the church. We have differences within the world in which we live. So how on earth can this heart change that we've experienced as a result of God's grace be reflected in our relationships with other people when there's such diversity in our midst? When I was stationed in Australia, I had to take an internal flight to go somewhere. You don't go the great distances in the car there. It takes forever. And I, I had to take an internal flight. And when I got on the plane, I found myself as the middle person in the seat of three. I have no idea how that happened. I would never, ever pick that as my preference. Window, yes. Aisle, yes. Middle, how did that happen? And as I got on the plane, the person in the window at boarding was already in there before me. So I got onto my, my seat and I sat next door. They were very pleasant. We started chatting straight away. 
The person in the aisle seat, he took a little while to arrive. He was, he was delayed in his boarding. And so we were chatting for about 20 minutes before he got on the plane. He got on the plane, sat down. Thankfully, he was really nice as well. And so to break the ice, I started chatting to him. And for the next 10 minutes, I'm chatting to him. But then I'm very conscious that the guy next door to me, not I've got anybody chatting. Right, okay. So I start chatting to him again. And for the next 10 minutes, I chat to him. And then I'm conscious that he's got nobody to talk to. So the whole flight, I'm... Honestly, I was exhausting. I was glad to see the food trolley coming just for a bit of respite. Listening to two voices was hard work. But you know, John Stott often used to speak of listening to two voices. He called it double listening. He described it like this. He described it as listening to the voice of God through scripture and the voices of men and women around us. These voices will often contradict one another, but our purpose in listening to them both is to discover how they relate to each other. Double listening is indispensable to Christian discipleship and to Christian mission. It's quite a profound thing that Stott suggests that we as Christians should be double listeners. Not that we're this and this and this. No, 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 no. By doing this double listening, we create space for the Holy Spirit to bring alive God's word to the people we talk to. And it does something for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. It actually helps us to be truly present and more compassionate towards the very neighbours that we actually want to reach. We listen to the word. We listen to the people we want to reach. Double listening. Doesn't mean that we'll always agree. There's going to be times when our differences are always going to be there. But we can still engage with and welcome others with whom we might disagree on all sorts of issues. Thomas Schultz, he calls this in his book, Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore. He calls it acceptance without endorsement. Acceptance without endorsement. And he illustrates that with a wonderful visit he made to Mongolia. When he went to Mongolia, he was made aware of a very beautiful practice of hospitality. When you go to Mongolia, the host of the house will bring you into the home by sharing this, this drink with everybody. And it's a common thing that they do in Mongolia. And they fill it with <coughs> fermented milk. And what you're supposed to do, it, it's a bit like a communion cup. You share this drink, and it's a sign of everybody's hospitality. He says this in his book, Our host filled our commu a communal bowl with fermented mare's milk and passed it from one person to the next. Imagine putting your lips to the pungent milk a taste that resembles a concoction of sour milk, warm beer, and pickle juice. Both of us had read in travel books, just touch your lips to the bowl, don't drink the milk. And he goes on, we, sh we love to share this story when we explain the differences, the difference between acceptance and endorsement. We can kindly accept radical difference from us in lifestyles, 
actions, looks and belief systems. We can touch our lips to the mare's milk, but we don't have to endorse them, guzzle it down. God wants visible, lived out, bodily evidence that our lives are built on his grace and on his transforming power. And in a diverse world, that is not always easy. But through Stock's double listening, through Schultz's acceptance without endorsement, it certainly helps us to achieve all of that. Over the last few weeks, we've considered our commitment renewal. And if we were to make this promise authentic, if we're to make it relevant to our daily discipleship, if we're going to stop it being something we put aside and forget that it's there, then we need to do three things. We need to be real about God. And that has to start with an accurate picture of who God is. We need to understand and reflect this picture in our living. We need to be real with ourselves because authentic Christianity is built on knowing Christ. We are to meet and be God on a daily basis. And finally, as we've seen today, we have to be real with others. If we are to be genuine in our discipleship, we should value relationships. We are to see and show the heart change that we've experienced as a result of God's grace is to be reflected in our relationship with others. So friends, at the end of this January, as we move on next week to self-denial, don't put that card aside. And more importantly, don't put the covenant aside that it represents. Let's make sure it's relevant to us throughout the rest of this year. Pick it up. Make sure it's going to be real for you every month, every day. Be real about God. Be real with yourself. And be real with others. And that's the pathway to authentic Christianity. Let's sing our prayer this morning. It's a simple little prayer that we often use in the church that says, in my life, Lord, be glorified. We could almost replace the word glorified with the word real. Because that's what we're saying. In my life, Lord, be real. Be real. In my life, Lord, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. And then the second verse, in our church, be glorified. Be real. Be real. Sing with me. I think it's a, a wonderful little prayer to finish our covenant series off. Because this is covenant. That in our lives we want him to be glorified together.
as Trisha carries on playing, let's just close our eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you a question, because I'm asking it of myself. How real is God to you? Can you say that today you are real about God? You have an accurate picture of who he is, of his nature, that you understand and you are reflecting him in your living. Are you real about God? Are you being real with yourself? Authentic Christianity is built on knowing Christ and we're to meet and be God on a daily basis are you meeting him are you being God and we are to be real with others if we're to be genuine in our discipleship we should value relationships we are to see and show the heart change that we've experienced as a result of God's grace is to be reflected in our relationship with others. And so is it. Are you real with others? Is that heart change reflected in your relationship with people in our church? With people at work, at school? With people outside that you meet? Sing again in my life, Lord. Father God, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at covenant, the covenant that we each have with you. And rather than put it aside as something that we just do once a year, we want that to be authentic and relevant to our daily discipleship. Lord, we want to be real about you. We want to have a very accurate picture of who you are of your nature. We want to understand you better. And we want to reflect that picture of you in our living. Lord, we want to be real with ourselves because we know that authentic Christianity is built on knowing you. And if we're not real with ourselves in acknowledging and understanding the relationship we have and the need to meet and be with you then we're just deceiving ourselves may we know you more and Lord we want to be real with others 
We want to value relationships. We want to show this heart change that we've experienced as a result of God's grace is reflected in our lives and our relationships with us. We want, just like Peter and John, to be described as people who have been with Jesus, to be known as people who are with Jesus. So, Lord, this day in our lives, be glorified. Be real in us now and always. Amen.